0: Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. My dad was diagnosed with cancer back in 2010, and before his death, there was one book he wanted to read, and that book was titled Life After Life by Dr. Raymond Moody. It is a book written by the man who coined the phrase near-death experience about his research that began in the 1960s into this phenomena about what happens when we die. Dr. Moody is now the best-selling author of 12 books, which have sold over 13 million copies. He has spoken all over the world for over three decades, talking about life after life, death with dignity, life after loss, surviving grief, finding hope, and so much more. He continues to train hospice workers, clergy, psychologists, medical professionals on matters of grief recovery and dying. He also continues to offer private and personal consultations. His website is lifeafterlife.com. I am very honored and excited to have this wonderful man who never stops giving on our show today. Dr. Raymond Moody, welcome to We Don't Die Radio.
1: Thank you so much, Sandra. I'm just happy to be here. Thanks.
0: And I'm happy to have you. And I remember the day when I was living in Florida with my dad that even though he was as religious as he was, I think there comes a moment when faced with our own mortality that we really want every bit of evidence that we can to know that we go on when he asked to read your book. And uh, I just find it very special that here we are today.
1: Yes, thank you so much. This You're is, welcome. Uh, delighted with yeah.
0: that. Yeah, well, how did it all begin? If you don't mind, I know you've told your story zillions of times, but can you take us back even who knows when, when you first got involved with this?
1: Yeah, I think probably the most logical way to do it is to say that um, when I was a kid, I my dad, it, at least when I was living at home up to the age of 18, my dad had been a a medic in World War II in the Pacific Theater, a surgeon, I'm, oh you know, I can imagine the things he saw. Although I didn't realize that at that time because those that generation didn't really talk much. All, all I, but the way it manifested in my life is that my dad was really hostile to religion when I was very young, which since we lived in the Deep South, that was a great blessing for me, actually. And um, so I just kind of grew up insulated from that aspect of life. Meanwhile, my mother's mother was very humorous and her religion was one of her favorite topics of humor, very gentle humor. So to me, I'll just be frank at here at age 72, when I was a kid, religion to me was just, uh, it was nothing. I just thought it was for people who you know, weren't very smart or something, to tell you the truth. And um, so, um, I, my astronomy was my thing from beginning from age seven and or eight. And I very quickly realized that um, the world we live in doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, if you try to think, for example, everybody thinks of the um, the. Uh, question about how big and what shape is this universe we live in and so when you're a kid you know you have that experience many people do of trying to imagine that and there only seems to be two possibilities one that it ends in a wall but you go out to the wall in your mind and you think just a minute here doesn't there have to be something on the other side of the wall yes or the other option seems to be that it goes on forever and ever and ever and that makes no sense either so I remember very early in my life getting very interested in things that don't make any sense. And I would say that, that has pretty much been the, um, the essence of my life is that I'm just really fascinated with what we call in philosophy unintelligibility and uh, I was a great reader of Dr. Seuss when I was a kid even before the the cat in the hat which came as a sort of disappointment to me when it was published in about 56 or 57 because I was more interested in Horton and Thidwick and the earlier ones you know and uh, the nonsense and also in Lewis Carroll I read and uh, this was just a big thing for me when I was a kid. Well. I went to the University of Virginia in 1962 at the age of 18, with the determination to go on and get my PhD in astronomy, Uh, and still one of my big interests. Okay, but um, I'd gotten interested in philosophy in uh, in high school, so I took a philosophy course my first semester at UVA. And just in literally in reading the first few pages of Plato's Republic, I could show you on the page where I decided this is for me. I'm going to be a philosophy major. And and I can tell you, the the very first person I encountered who took this notion of an afterlife seriously was Plato. Before then, I thought it was my only contact with it was. You know, on the New Yorker cartoons where it shows the angels and the gates and so on. I thought it was just, I didn't know anybody took it seriously. So, but at the end of The Republic, there's this story about a man, Ur, who apparently was killed on the battlefield, but at his funeral, spontaneously revived and talked about going into another world. And I asked my professor... Professor Hammond about that, and he said, yeah, these early Greek philosophers were interested in cases of people who had apparently died and been revived. And so, um, that was my entree, but I never suspected it was anything other than Greek things, right? But then in 65, third year undergraduate philosophy at UVA, I met Dr. George Ritchie, who's to this day the most wonderful, finest person I ever knew in my life. And George at that time was a, a psychiatry professor there who had actually had this experience. And I heard Dr. Ritchie talk about his experience, and to me it was just obvious that this man was for real. Now, in the sense that he was honestly convinced of this. And now as to me whether it was real or real, unreal, I didn't know. And I kind of figured there wasn't any clear way of finding out, actually. But I was impressed by Dr. Ritchie, and I was convinced that he felt it was real. To make a long story short, I went on and I got my PhD in philosophy at UVA in uh, 1969 at the age of 24 years old, which I look back now, oh my God, there's something terribly wrong with somebody who would have a Ph.D. in philosophy by the age of 24, That's because, uh, well, you know, because really I was pretty much all in my head. Yes, I went yes. on to be a philosophy professor at East Carolina University from 1969 to 72, and in teaching courses on Plato, Began to hear these stories from my students, and also as word around campus spread that there was this philosophy professor over there who was talking with people who almost died. Um, I got in, uh, invited to the uh, civic to various kind of clubs in town, and always you would hear these stories of even the movers and shakers in town. These stories of being resuscitated and having these experiences, and um, so. Heard them also from various colleagues there on, on the faculty, would very, you know, asking for, obviously, anonymity, would come up and talk with me about their experiences. Yes. And so when I went to medical school in 1972, I already had quite a number of these cases and um, got invited to the medical societies there and started talking about it. It was very, very supported very kindly by the medical faculty there. I mean, you know, I hear this story all the time. Oh, poor Dr. Moody was persecuted by the medical uh, clique. you know, that wanted him, tried to drum him out. But that never, it just never happened. No matter Interesting. Yeah, my the faculty members there at the medical college really, really helped me on this, and uh, so then published my book on the subject, and I wrote it in '74, published it in '75, and subsequently have talked with thousands and thousands of people who all over the world who had these um, very inspiring experiences uh, at the point of death, and. All the time just thinking obviously these are things are so fascinating but never having any sense that I could say for sure whether it is or isn't and I will say all this too my my interest in philosophy were uh, logic and philosophy of language and ancient Greek philosophy and from that background I can still say that if we are looking to logic, as we have it in 2016 Uh, and especially science, you know, people say, oh, scientific proof of an afterlife, and that's very embarrassing to anybody who really understands the scientific method and so on. Very few actual scientists will say that, oh, there could be scientific proof of an afterlife, but it's not for some ideological reason. It's the simple fact that sentences like there is life after death for reasons I won't go into but we could explain Don't really fit into the modality or the, the Format that you need to verify something um, scientifically uh, But it has to do with the difficulties of verification of things that really are not clearly formulated as a concept is the difficulty um, but Um, logic aside which I don't think it's in 2016 it's not going to hack it to get to a proof but but aside from that and quite aside from faith too you can eventually just reach a point of throwing up your hands and say I give up Uh, for example about a year and a half ago um, I was talking with a surgeon and um, he, after my lecture, he sort of pulled me aside to the corner in the back of this auditorium. And um, I could tell from his eyes he was haunted by something, not in a negative way, but you could tell from his demeanor and his eyes that he had been through something. He just had really just blown his mind, I suppose you'd say. Okay. And he tell, he, in this corner, he talked to me about how recently he had... Um, been performing an elective surgery on a fairly young man uh, who was in overall good health. There was no thought that anything bad would happen during the surgery. But in the event, the um, patient had a cardiac arrest on the table and the surgeon wasn't able to revive him. So he was, as he told me, just beside himself and thinking, oh, my God, how did this happen? And uh, what am I going to tell the family and so on? When he said, all of a sudden, the surgery room doors flew open and a woman came screaming in. Just he thought she was psychotic and um, raving, is from his point of view. And yeah, when you're under stress, um, you have a hard time making sense of what somebody else is saying. But he said he absolutely had to focus in on her face to try to figure out what she was saying. And he said he realized she was saying, my husband is not dead. And she was saying, I was out in the waiting room and my husband came to me and he said, but you think he's dead and that I'm supposed to come in here and tell you that he's not dead. And the surgeon told me he was so flabbergasted by this he doesn't even remember resuming the resuscitation he went on automatic but then after a while to his astonishment this patient's heart started beating again wow so he said he was there in the recovery room when the patient regained consciousness and what the patient said to him was well i was out of my body up there looking at you and i could tell you that i was dead but i kept trying to say i'm not dead i'm not dead but you wouldn't hear me And so he said, I went out into the waiting patient's family's waiting room to try to get through to my wife that she should come in here and tell you I'm not dead. Now, that's one story of many, many I could tell you from physicians whose medical judgment I trust about their own experiences. And the great logician and mathematician, Alfred North Whitehead, once said, he said, you know, In formal logic, a self-contradiction is a sign of defeat. That means if and and the sentence there is life after death is just a self-contradiction because if you look up the words, death just means the final irreversible cessation of life. So when you say there's a life after death, you're saying... Uh, there is life after the final reversible cessation of life, which is self-contradictory and therefore it doesn't fit into the logical framework that we're using right now every, as we're thinking this.
0: Well, I never thought of any of this this way. That's great.
1: Well, that's right, and, and that's the way where you need to begin to think of it to to eventually get to the point where I think we're, there are now entirely new rational means of investigating this that are rigorously rational and don't don't fall into the pseudoscientific fallacies of many people who try to investigate this. And um, so what I'm saying right now, incidentally, is... Um, I am prepared to assert because I've I've run this by many colleagues of various fields who are not interested in the afterlife question, by the way, or just very rigorous scholars. And I've run this work by about 14 of the most brilliant people I've ever known in my life from different fields. And they have all agreed that I have made a breakthrough in the rational inquiry into life after death. And this is getting ready to be... Published, at least in France, because, um, you know, I love France. I, it's, I mean, it's the last place in the world that is still subscribes to reason. <laughs> you know, when you go over there, you see, instead of news about um, uh, Brad and Perugina or whoever, you know, you see all about the latest controversies and philosophy in the news. So, you know, they're so completely rational. So my book is first being published in France I'm ho- in January. I'm hoping that it will uh, be published soon in the U.S. too. Uh, but basically what I've worked out is a new system of thinking that enables us to think logically about things that up to now we've never been able to think about logically because they don't make any sense. From the philosophical point of view, they're unintelligible or nonsensical, right? And, um, and you know, what we have to do to rationally compute the notion of an afterlife, which I am asserting here and now, is possible. It is quite contrary to the greatest skeptic in the modern world was david hume who lived from 1711 to 1776 and um, Hume, him for example was a friend of ben franklin he was scottish and he is the archetype of a modern skeptic and um he was essential in creating or bringing about what we call today the scientific mind because of his explorations of what we call inductive logic, which is the kind of logic that we think of in science, and and the notion of causality. And uh, Hume said accurately, and if you listen to this while I run these words through, and follow it in your mind, you'll see that he's right. He said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. And he went on to say some new species of logic is required for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to uh, to comprehend that logic. Now, Hume was being ironic. Well, you can tell what he really meant was that it's impossible. But I have now shown to the satisfaction of a huge number of my colleagues that you can actually fulfill Hume's requirement and you can come up with a new system of rational principles that open up new cognitive faculties that we didn't know we had in our mind. And that when you go through that process Then at the end of it, you can come back to this afterlife question and the other big questions at a sort of new level of awareness. But what I'm getting at here is, and this is to me a very exciting prospect, is that in reality, we can't compute the afterlife question with the logic that we have on board right now. However, it's very simple to go through a like a process of thinking and doing some exercises basically where you reformat your mind so that we can think rationally about this afterlife question and it opens up entirely new ways to think about this in a logical way. And I was waiting for years. See, I've been teaching this new logic since, uh, beginning back in 1969 when I was a philosophy professor and I've continually developed it and um, started to my, in my logic and philosophy classes in 69 but I've continuously gone on to develop this. And um, I can tell you there is a way to go through a process and of thinking and like i said writing out some simple self-explanatory exercises which regulates your mind so that we can think about this afterlife question in new ways and i knew full well just from experience i have taught entire semester-length courses at universities on this for long time decades wow. and um so I always was fully aware that eventually somebody who had um, had gone through this process was going to happen to have a near-death experience, right? And from the reasoning process, it would follow that therefore the person who went into the near-death experience with already having these new rational principles on board would, when they came back, be able to articulate this in an entirely new way. And on October the 15th, last October the 15th, I got a call from an old friend of mine, and actually he was just calling to tell me about his near-death experience. He had, had been through this terrible ordeal, and, uh, oh my God, it's just uh, gangrene and lost a leg and a dog Oh, awful. Oh, my God, it's terrible. And he had... Cardiac arrest during this time, and he had these three near-death experiences during this ordeal. But he was an artist, art as an artist, but also a he had a big background in physics. So, and he was telling me about his near-death experiences, but there was this kind of like weakness in his voice, which you can imagine. But then all of a sudden, just about maybe six or eight years before, he had been to one of my workshops on on this new logic, and so. He was talking along in this tired voice and then all of a sudden his voice got clear and like really sort of excited and he said and Raymond," he said and when i was over there he said i went back to the things i'd learned in your log in your course and he said and i suddenly realized and i think this is so funny the way he put it is exactly like a physicist would, physicist i guess would put it he said i realized over there that it's just like you were saying that in order to understand how that realm over there is connected with this one here he says you've got to take the unintelligibility axis into account and so i take that as a confirmation of my um and it'll happen again i mean this once you walk through this argument you see it's the great stoic philosopher seneca um in the antiquity said and i forgot what he was talking about exactly but the point he he made was some subject he was thinking about he said our descendants will just be incomprehending that we were able to keep ourselves ignorant about something so obvious and basically what i've come up with is something that is once you look back at it it's obvious but now it just seems very counterintuitive and that is basically that sadly in english in american english we misuse the term nonsense and we have this bad feeling around about it right but if you just transform your thinking and you think not of that that actually mistake that people make but think of nonsense in the terms of dr seuss and Shell silverstein and uh, lewis carroll edward lear um, and you think about things that many of the people listening to us right now are going to remember from childhood one bright day in the middle of the night two dead boys got up to fight Back to back they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A blind man came to see the fray, a dumb man came to shout hooray. A deaf policeman heard the noise and came and killed those two dead boys. Playground rhymes like that, which kids would throw a ba- ball around, for example, in time with the chant, as a way of social bonding. Or well, if you think of the nursery rhymes, "Hickory Dickory Dock" or "Diddle Diddle Dumpling, My Son John," all those, or doo wop music of people of my generation, "Shana na na na, shana na na, get a job," right? right which, right. which. Uh, integrates the meaningful language and the unintelligible and nonsensical language. That singing for jazz fans, Willie uh, Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, um, but most people, as I realize, a lot of people are just not going to be able to do this. It's so counterintuitive. They won't be able to push themselves through it. But for those who can just get over that superstition about the word nonsense, we can begin to see that see the way that logic came about was through um, it's a historical development that lasted from, say, 600 B.C. to about 320 B.C. with the death of Aristotle. And and Plato, Aristotle's coach, I guess, um, was onto this, that he realized that in addition to the... See, Plato was the first person who distinguished clearly between the literal and figurative meaning, okay? And, and he associated true and falsehood with the uh, literal domain of language. And in the next generation, um, Aristotle picked that up and he predicated the logic that everybody is using right now because it's just ingrained in us now but um aristotle predicated it on literal meaning but plato had been trying to fit out to work out the rules and principles by which nonsensical language works too and but aristotle just dropped that because he was a highly compulsive person and what that has ended up is that we have in the west a sort of collective hidden cognitive deficit that we don't know about, Mm -hmm. and that simply by working that out, you can open up these faculties of your mind that you don't know you have, and they are are useful not just for thinking about life after death, but all sorts of other big questions, and so um, this is where this is headed. It looks like I might well have a grant in the next little while here to be able to teach this my initial one will be to to uh, teach 10 seminars with 15 participants each and sort of and to sort of conduct the study from there but um this is going to leak out i mean you know it's people have this sort of uh superstition that nonsense is something unidimensional but i could show you right now that i've been able to identify over 70 different types of nonsense listen to this for example okay twas brilliant the slightly toasted guyron gimbal and the Wabe. okay now that's one type of nonsense but listen to this type this is a different type holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity or listen to this type that cannibal you man just ate was the last one in this county okay now there right there are three different types of nonsense but there's over 70 different types and all of this is actually already embedded in your mind in a way it's just it's amazing how the western mind has the history of how it got formulated and the history of how this mistake was made Which makes us feel falsely that we're unable to think logically about things that don't make any sense. But we can. And this is thoughts
0: for my brain who's only been taught to think one way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but you know, you can it's it's just great fun. I've had a lot of fun with this. Um, younger people, as you can imagine, pick up on this more easily than us older folks. But um, I am completely confident in the next few years that we will be making major advancements in the study of um, life after death. You know, one of the difficulties here among uh, the uh, is that, as Plato really brilliantly pointed out. He, um, he said that whenever you look at this question of life after death, which he said is the most important question of existence, and which I I concur with that. And um, he said, but whenever you get to thinking about it, he said, there's a, in trying to rationally comprehend the notion of an afterlife, he said that there is an inherent difficulty, and that is that because the notion is obscure, you have to have some sort of storyline to get the thought stream started. And, and by a narrative or a story, for example, the same ones that he had, we have today. You know, like I got out of my body and went through a tunnel into a light and I saw my life pass in review. I came back to my body and returned to life. That travel narrative format, see, so there's always got to be some sort of story, Yes, Plato tells us. Now, and, and that is wonderful, and I've heard thousands of these inspiring stories, and they have changed my life, and I can't wait to hear the next one, okay? And at the same time, we could accumulate a billion stories, and it still wouldn't add up to that rational proof that many are looking for now not everybody is looking for a rational proof of an afterlife some people are afraid to put it in those terms because they're afraid that they might bumble into something that contradicts their religious ideology or whatever yes. right but if um, uh, you know it's as wonderful as the stories are and as necessary and i can't wait to hear the next one at some point, really to satisfy that desire to have real comprehension of this, it's going to require sitting down and thinking through some really interesting information. And, um, you know, we have this entire realm of our mind in there. Uh, a, A literary theorist of the early 19th century, her name was Carolyn Wells, who also wrote nonsense poetry and so on, and um, she said, we have a sense of nonsense just as surely as we have a sense of humor. And we do, but because of the Western sort of um, Protestant work ethic mentality is basically what it is. It sounds impractical or counterintuitive, so people don't want to fuss with it. But uh, for anybody who has the gumption to sit down and to think through a... a." Um, line of reasoning we're now in a position where we absolutely can come up with an entirely new completely rational way of researching the afterlife this wonderful uh, colleague as she now is she started as my graduate student but um she's a linguist graduate linguist uh, got her degree in linguistics from the university of california the best linguistic school in the nation and um, i had thought for years that you know as a physician i can tell you and many of the people listening to us will know of this from your personal experience that many times when a, a loved one is dying in the last few days or hours or minutes of life they start talking nonsense. That may seem counterintuitive, but I guarantee you lots of people listening to this will say, yeah, that's what grandma did. Yes. And many times, as I've observed, the people who are left behind will tell me something like their relatives say, well, you know, I knew when she was saying it that it was nonsense, but somehow in the back of my mind, it really, it meant something to me. And so... Of what my colleague is now doing, you see, is recording these um, terminal utterances. And because we have now a, this typology of the different types of nonsense that um, there are, we can now actually analyze the structure of the dying communications of people. And this is, I mean, you know, I'm really good at, at extrapolation. Don't have any psychic <laughs> I've always been great at extrapolation, and I tell you, this is the next big thing in afterlife studies. Is what we're talking about right now, and um, it will it will require us to change our minds. And to me, that's really exciting to say that we actually can we can go through a process which in a, which we can actually reformat our minds. To think rationally and clearly and logically about really big questions that have heretofore uh, not been um, um, amenable to, to rational thought, and incidentally, in the whole quest for knowledge, and more to bring it down to to the scientific method, for example. Uh, Nonsense has always played a big role in science as what I call a placeholder, and what that means is that when you are working on a question that obviously requires an answer, But the mind just isn't capable yet of putting it together into something sensical. What's always been done in science is that you invent sort of nonsense to carry the inquiry along. Just like, you know, when a singer is singing on stage and they forget the words, what do they do? They just, I saw Elvis do it, right? Like they add in a little nonsense just to fill in. in. And similarly, for example, The two most powerful physical theories we've ever had are um, the uh, general theory of relativity and the quantum theory, okay, but if, and those are very powerful modalities of thought, but if you integrate the equations to the two uh, theories, it's total nonsense, right, so what that mean, But that doesn't mean that we're going to give up those theories, right? We right. keep on working it in the Anticipation anticipation that in the future there will be some way of working this out and making it intelligible And what I can tell you now confidently is that we're on the verge of this with the afterlife question there's going to be pretty soon this will be a whole new world and um, it will involve new principles and entirely new ways to think about the afterlife. But to me, the even more, and there's nothing that could be more important and it's exciting than the afterlife in a way. However, um, in terms of the priority of inquiry, uh, the, the, in terms of the importance, surely the most important thing is the afterlife question in terms of the order of inquiry the most important thing first it is to get your mind straight about how to think about unintelligible things or nonsense and we can do it and it was just it was just a fact of aristotle's mentality he's very obsessive compulsive as you can tell by reading his will for example and he was, um, anything that smacked of the irrational to him was horrifying. So his favorite term for nonsense was random talk. Well, we can see very clearly just by a simple argument that far from being random talk, nonsense is actually less random than ordinary meaningful language. And the reason is most people think of, if, if say, a certain, draw a line in your mind across horizontal line and let that be the line that be the um, the line or the level of ordinary meaningful language most people think of nonsense as something sublinguistic that is uh, below that line but if you think it through you can quickly see that actually nonsense is something up above the line it's actually a more complicated and complex mode of discourse than ordinary meaningful language all kinds of amazing um, implications I was um, I was a forensic psychiatrist for a while I worked in a maximum security unit with the criminally insane and all wow. these people you read about in the National Enquirer who ground up their mother and father in a meat grinder or something you know, yes. that was daily work and um, I discovered something I called the uh, Fee-fi-fo-fum syndrome after that English nursery rhyme Fee-fi-fo-fum. Uh, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead I'll rind his bones to make his my bread. Well I um, had a number of patients who had that who, who before they would kill somebody would utter nonsense. Uh, and also, that's the only bad thing, you know. The only bad use of nonsense. Everything else is, uh, is. Uh, I mean, there's. A, it's a. It's a wonderful modality. It's a big um, uh, part of children's literature. Just go to any bookstore and take a look. You know, definitely. Back and it's. It's a very important thing to kids. And uh, kids naturally go through a phase, developmental phase, when they get about. Three to six years of age, they start making up nonsense words for the fun of it. And uh, what this signifies, paradoxically, if you think about it, is that it means that they have mastered enough regular language to know the difference. Right. So when they make up the nonsense words, it's like they're playing with nonsense or with words for the sake of it. And it's very important. It's in advertising. I mean, oh my God, it's just a vast realm of our minds that we have ignored. But um, lots of people now are waking up to it because I've.
0: It's interesting, Dr. Moody, because you're giving my brain something to think about that I've never heard of, never experienced. And it's Mm -hmm. hard to grapple with what it means, what it's, what you're saying. And what, what's coming up to me is just as me, Sandra, a human being Mm -hmm. was never taught to question my thoughts. Now I know that I've had a lot of negative thinking in my head Mm -hmm. and I know it's not the truth, but even Mm -hmm. the logic to how we think, it's never even dawned on me that we need a new logic hmm yeah so I don't know I, I'm listening to you I'm on the edge of my seat and I don't know what to ask I don't know what to process I don't but what you're mm-hmm. giving me is there's something new and and it's having something new that's going to be able to answer and give us real
1: it is Sandra, uh, let me ask you this what did you study what are your interests
0: uh, you mean in the world of life after death or you mean just growing up oh, just
1: Just growing up, what are you, you know, what did you study? What are you interested in?
0: Oh, I was interested in cooking. I became a chef. I wanted to
1: know how to
0: create, to Mm -hmm. mix things and create, and I had a very vivid imagination. I had uh, not imaginary friends, but, I mean, I really lived in a world that I thought magic was possible, and, and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe that was nonsense. You know, I'd come up with my own poetry and my own words, and
1: yeah as a kid cool and uh, yes well um I've got an idea here sure uh, why don't I send this over to you along with some exercises and you read it and um, I this is not published yet but I mean I hate and already this brought to my mind that um, I hate to just sort of be spewing this out and not getting the listeners a chance to um, see what this is all about. Um, This is not published yet, but I'd have to get... Let me put it this way. I could get Xerox copies made, and anybody who wants to pay for the Xeroxing and the shipping, I can send one to them.
0: Perfect.
1: And also, it comes with exercises. I'd have to figure out how much, you know, I wouldn't, just whatever, it's, I guess Xeroxing is expensive when you're doing it on a one-on-one thing. Yes. And, um, so I, I'd have to figure that out, but I'm, I'm happily willing to, you know, not, it'd be great to make money on it because I've spent so much money on it, but oh, that's that money is not the point. But, I'm you know, I'm happy to um, provide anybody who wants to read through this. And I think it's fun. I mean, it's the, uh, um it has all kinds of spiritual and psychological uh, and scientific implications in addition to uh, thinking of cooking uh, you know a lot of the great um nonsense poets wrote nonsense recipes <laughs> and um dr seuss has one It's you know you send the format of a, a a recipe and so you know you're reading and you think oh this is a recipe but it makes absolutely no sense Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Very good. And for our listener now, stay tuned to We Don't Die dot com. Click on episode one one eight, hundred and eighteen, and that's Dr. Raymond Moody's episode. So when we figure out exactly the Xerox copies and how to get a copy, I'll have it on that site. Okay. Right. Perfect. Right. Let me just ask you to, I do know that you're still passionate about helping people with mm-hmm. grief and helping people um Oh, to the other side of that. I, I, I know our time goes by really quick on this episodes, Um But lots of our listeners, yes, are looking for the evidence of the afterlife. And there's a lot that are brought to this conversation because they've lost a loved one. Do you yeah. have any words of wisdom, just even where to start or how you go about helping people through? I know it's a big world, but um, just maybe some words for somebody who's...
1: It is a big word, Sandra, and I will say this: that you know, grief is just the toughest of life, and I think maybe the worst of the worst is to lose a child. You know, um, yes. I went through that in 1970. I was, um, and I, my first child died at the age of 36 hours, which to me was nine months, right? Yes. You know, and. Um, so, I know this, and grief is, what I, I feel that I can say from my experience, I mean, and running this through my moral channel as well, because I think great, <laughs> and you can do as a scholar, I think, to uh, to say something, that's accurate, right, and that, um, let's say for that, you know, to say to people that there's scientific proof of an afterlife may make them feel good for a few minutes, but, it, but it's not real. Right. But so I can't give you that. But what I can say is that reason is closely on the trail of life after death and that there are entirely new means now to investigate it. And despite the fact that I am the archetype of a skeptic, you know, one thing about very sad about this whole field of things like this, life after death things and all, is that the people who characterize themselves as skeptics are just... I'm sorry to say it's ignorance because they they show by their very way of talking that they have no idea what a skeptic is and the reason why this irritates me is that I just love to teach ancient greek philosophy so when I get to the skeptics who are very important you know school of early greek philosophers i have to go back and undo what these Ming nongs have put in their minds you know they they even have an organization which is made up of a lot of entertainers and houdini wannabes and all and they used to sort of pretend they were law enforcement officers they call themselves the psy cops <laughs> and you know lovely people lovely people but they were ideologues and um And basically, they have appropriated that word skeptic for themselves, but I've asked many of them for years, well, oh, I'm I'm going to say, oh, you're a skeptic, well, let's talk about Pyrrho, right, who was the founder, oh, who's that, right, because they don't know what they're talking about. But let me explain what a skeptic is. A skeptic is a person whose style, as it were, cognitive style, is to avoid drawing conclusions. And they did this for a reason. It really does expand your mind. So what a, uh, these people say is, oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences. I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. Well, if you unpack what they just said it's, is, I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions, and my conclusion is such and such. Yes, yeah,
0: it doesn't make sense.
1: Not, it makes no sense but the real mentality that is actually needed for probing into this is the skeptical mentality of of realizing the difficulties of drawing conclusions either way and so i am a skeptic and then i I can't draw a conclusion that there's an afterlife and i will say that the words have almost been extruded from me now because i mean i give up i just i know so many Medical doctors who've had these conjoint experiences with their dying patients, I give up. I mean, and, and and I wouldn't even be saying that unless I had feel that there is now a way of around the logical problem so that somebody who is wants to do this can go through a reasoning process in which they will um, be able to think about this in a, in a genuinely rational way. And uh, so what I would say is from my... Life experience, I am the words, the thoughts in my mind now I, I just give up. But but it's easy to get into this thing of using the an idea about life after death death as a rationalization for not having to grieve. Right? Oh. And even if we can know for sure rationally, that there's an afterlife. Grief is still around. I hear this from people all the time who've had near-death experiences. That Yeah, you know, when somebody dies that they love, they say the grief is even more acute because they can't rationalize that there's an afterlife anymore, right? right. Because if they've been there, it's, it is. But they, then they have to face the fact that that grief, the grief comes from missing the person. That's what it is. And grief is a very complicated, uh, I think it's one of the remaining mysteries of the mind. To me, the biggest mysteries of the mind are humor, uh, which is just an absolutely incomprehensible faculty, and, um, and grief, and the talent that, as I gather, our minds have of under certain circumstances being able to transmute or to transition into some other dimension of reality because that's the crux of the afterlife question is what is it like to experience a change of dimension right Right. and that's that's a tough one but now we're we're on the way we're on the way i i guarantee you this is this is being worked on actively because we're, there's now ways to think about how the mind or the consciousness can transition into some other reality. I hear all the time from people with new death experiences who are very articulate who say something like that they they found themselves in a more inclusive state of existence or a more inclusive reality and that used to be forbidden for us to think about it but now we can actually think about how it's possible to we I'm, I believe that we potentially even have ability now to assuming that as, during the dying process the mind or the consciousness transitions over into some other realm of existence we now have a method where we can track that and we could Presumably, I mean, this is complicated, but its I think it's possible to catch that in the act. In other words, to detect um, when somebody passes over to the other world.
0: That's pretty cool. Hmm. Wow. You've left me speechless, and that doesn't happen often. ha, <laughs> ha.
1: Well, I know this is just so abstract in the abstract. It
0: but is. Even Dr. Modi talking to many people that have had near-death experiences, mm-hmm. they cannot formulate into words what they experience. Exactly.
1: exactly. That is, see, that's the most common feature of near-death experiences. They say that there are, and no matter how articulate or how many languages they speak, they say, I just can't. Ex- Put it into words. Well, now we have a way around this, and it's worked at least once, and it will work again. So we can we can reform out our minds so that when, just by chance, you happen to have a near-death experience, you will have an additional rational principles on board to be able to think logically about it and to talk about it. In a new way and then in the future when we have lots of um, cases of this of people who've been able to articulate their near-death experiences using these new rational principles then we will be able to compare those with the ones we already have when you look at the near death experience through the lens of Aristotle's logic apparently you're compelled to um, present it as a travel narrative, right? Mm-hmm. I got out of my body, I went through a tunnel into a light, I met my deceased relatives, I saw my life pass in review, I returned to my body and came back to life. That's a travel narrative. But if you think about it for a moment, there's a real difficulty in that, as which they say, and that is that what people also say is that as soon as you're out of here, you're not that Time and space don't exist anymore. No time passes. People say everything they've ever done in their lives is in this holographic panorama, but instantly, right? So there's no time, and also there's no space. It's like if you think about something, it's just instantaneous. There's no transition through space, right? Well, but the reason why we understand the difference we, the reason why we understand a travel narrative, like the what is involved in understanding the meaning of a travel narrative is the concepts of time and space, right? So there's a big difficulty here. But now we have a way of solving that difficulty. Who, somebody who then subsequently has a near-death experience will have a new set of concepts to deal with that. So it will a- enable them to articulate the... New death experience in an entirely new way.
0: Wow. Talk about thinking outside of the box. First getting that there is a box. <laughs> wow.
1: That's right. I tell my logic students, it's great to think outside of the box. And in order to think outside the box, the first thing you got to do is to learn how to think inside the box. Right.
0: Right. And as human beings, this is not a normal conversation we have. Mm-hmm. And so I really get that we're just using all what we have, but there's a whole other way of thinking, a whole other world to explore that's going to make yeah, Fair. the life after death question just seem like an obvious, we'll have an obvious answer. Yeah,
1: or, or we'll have an obvious way to think about it and yeah. to start investigating it. And it's already being done. There's all new, there's studies underway, mm-hmm. based principles to try to uh, make sense of it
0: let me ask you uh, just a last question because we're at the top of the hour now being in these different inquiries all your life mm-hmm. has it made a difference do you think into the quality of your life
1: to a degree it has it's fair i'm 72 now and i've heard my first near-death experience from a living human being when I was uh, 20. So, um, it's hard for me to separate those things, yes. right? Yes, yep. And yet, and and also, I am, you know, a faulted human being. I, I like to say at age 72, and anybody who's 72 who's listening to this will agree with me that I honestly say, look, I'm sick of Raymond Moody, right? And I'm I'm the happiest I've ever been. And other people might understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you get to the reach where ego, I mean, you know, ego is the... And, and, you know, it sounds egotistical to say that I'm past ego, right? But Which it would be if I, I burned the incense and I laid on the bed of nails. But that wasn't how it happened to me. I just got rid of ego because, you know, I near kill myself with it right and and at a certain point you just realize what a bore and a pain that ego is yes where I am is at age 72 my I have two wonderful grown sons and they're doing great I've got a wonderful grandson and he's got his parents and I've got two wonderful children adopted at birth Carter is eighteen and Carol Ann is sixteen. Carter is um, Mexican American by heritage and Carolyn is a Native American blackfeet Indian mm-hmm. from Montana, but they are my you know, they're my responsibility now and so it's so neat at age seventy two to know exactly why you're here is to serve those two and to get them along and then i'm not i don't want to end up i was in geriatric psychiatry for a while i don't want to end up in a wheelchair all bent over that might be some people might you know this there are people who could adapt not me not me i want to be out of here as soon as i'm you know it's because James Stewart said one time, he said, You know, after 70, it's just badge, badge, badge. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to get into that, right? I, I walk every day, and um, and to me, I'm not afraid of death. It's life that scares me, yes. right? So yes. um, I'm just um, it's very, it's, it's a good time of life for me.
0: Yeah, well, I am absolutely thrilled that you've been able to spend this last hour with us. Really awesome. And you've opened up a new inquiry for me that I didn't even know that I didn't know about.
1: Yeah, well, let's get it. I mean, I'm not so good. I have no, um, and my last computer had a crank on the side, and uh, <laughs> I'm not so good at this, but if you can send an email or I can get some method to send this to you, and, and then just, if you don't mind, just read it through and do the exercises and see whether you think I'm right. Perfect. But if I'm right, then we got, There's there's been a breakthrough in how to think about life after death.
0: I love it. I love it and I will do that and for our listener also, stay tuned to wedontdieradio.com episode 118 and we'll put our findings and however we communicate through Xerox or whatever we do by mail, we'll figure it all out. Dr. Moody, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for all you do, all you continue to do, the people you continue to serve and make a difference with and um, yeah, you're an inspiration how to live a joy-filled life as a human being still making a difference and still growing yourself so
1: thank you so much awesome. this. Really
0: been delightful. yes awesome and for our listener thank you for spending this time with us i yes, thank you no know it's been a value to me i'm sure it's been value to you and really starting to question what we don't know we don't know and uh I do think it's the tip of the iceberg for all of us who want to continue digging into it. So in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain and I've been your host on We Don't Die Radio and I personally believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. So thank you for listening and we'll see you soon.